grateful for the gifts of so many people in our congregation, especially y'all. Thank you for that. Our scripture uh, for this morning is uh, a conversation with Jesus that is in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. You can find it if you're looking in the Pew Bibles on page 876. Uh, So that's Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, going all the way down uh, through verse 31. So let's stand, shall we, as we read Luke chapter 16, starting here in 19. These are the words of Jesus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. And now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. passage this morning is uh, sobering to read out loud. It's even more sobering to study all week. Um, Jesus, in the passage that we have here this morning, is capping off a series of parables that are right in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. And this section of Luke is where we find the parable of the prodigal son, uh, the, the lost coin, the lost sheep. It's really kind of like the greatest hits collection of, uh, of Jesus' parables. So all, all the good ones are right here. And each parable touches uh, on an aspect of our ordinary day-to-day life in this world. They're practical. They use uh, real-life examples. All except for this parable. In our passage today, most of the action doesn't take place in this life. It actually takes place in the life to come. In heaven and hell. And the audience for Jesus' parable this morning, we need to remember, is a group of Pharisees 
And his disciples are kind of mixed in there, but really he's speaking mainly to this group of Pharisees. And Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They're people who are familiar with the Bible, who attend worship every week, but they're described in the Gospel of Luke as image conscious, but inwardly immoral. They're whitewashed tombs. Uh, They're like unmarked graves that people walk over without even knowing it and say fall into them. Uh, They're hypocritical. They're grumblers and they're jealous. And then in Luke 16, 14, they're described as lovers of money and self-righteous. And so in this conversation that Jesus is having, this extended conversation with this group of men, with his disciples listening, Jesus decides to tell them a story. And the story is about how to live our life with the end in mind. How to live our lives in such a way that we come to the end of our time on earth and we can look back and not have any regrets. Not wish we could do something over. Not wish for a mulligan. Uh, This is Jesus' philosophy of, of how to live your life on this earth. Now, and you might be familiar with another common philosophy of how to live life. It's called YOLO. Uh, it's not even that cool anymore to say. It sounds dated to say YOLO. So college students, it's like not cool anymore, is it? But anyway, so YOLO, Y-O-L-O, stands for you only live once. And you might hear people say, you know, let's have another piece of pie. YOLO. You know, you only live once. And see, the idea is you only live once. You only have one life to live, right? So cram as much pleasure, as much enjoyment, as much relationship, as much excitement, as much extravagance into this one finite space of time that you can because you only have one life to live. So live it up. And that would be a great philosophy if you only did live once. But the Bible is very clear. That you don't just live once. You live once in this life, and then you have another life in the next. And so Jesus, in this conversation, he wants us to be prepared for the life to come because you don't only live once. Here's some better advice. Uh, Matthew Henry, the Puritan preacher, he wrote this. It ought to be the business of every day to prepare For the last day, it ought to be the business. It ought to be the concern of every single person's day, every day to prepare for the last day. You ought to live life in this world with life in the next world in mind. Every one of us is going to have a last day. What do you need to be prepared? Well, those of us uh, who have been in school, thankfully, most of you are out this summer. Uh, think back. How does a good teacher make sure that you're prepared, make sure that you have what you need for the exam? Uh, a good teacher wants you to be prepared. They don't want you to be, t- be taken by surprise. So what do they give you? They give you a, a study guide. And the study guide tells you right out front, here's everything that you're going to be tested on. Here's everything that you need to know so that when you go to take the exam, you can't say... You didn't tell me a bad teacher, a wicked teacher, a cruel teacher, a mean teacher tries to trick you. I mean, they put all kinds of stuff on the exam that you would only know like by dumb luck if you had happened to a chance on something on a random page in a textbook. But a good teacher, a teacher who's concerned about you, who really wants you to know the concepts is going to tell you what you're going to be tested on ahead of time. Not just so you can study the test, but you, so you can know what's important and you can know what you're going to be graded on. Jesus is a good teacher. 
And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, he's saying to us this morning, God has given you what you need ahead of time. God has told you what you will be tested on. You have everything that you need to know in God's word. In God's word, if we would just listen to his word, if we would just receive his word, if we would just let his word shape our lives and correct our lives, if we would not just listen to the word, but we would do the word of God, we would have everything that we need to be prepared for the next life. We don't need anything else. According to Jesus, God isn't trying to be tricky. Uh, he's not made his will hidden so that you need to go to some um, mountaintop or some spiritual retreat or sit with some guru or pray this special prayer to know what God's will is for your life and to be prepared for the next. God has clearly laid out his will in the most clear way possible. Everything you need to know is in God's word. If you let his word shape your life, you will have everything that you need. Because in God's word, we'll see through this parable that God defines our reality. He diagnoses our real problem and he dispenses the cure that we need. And it's all here right in the parable. So first, let, let's look uh, starting in verse 19 and we'll see how God defines our reality. If we would listen to God's word, the Bible is able to define our reality. Now, let's just look at, at the the. Um, the outward situation of these two men. And I think when we look, we're going to see that in reality, there's actually more to our lives than just our bodies. Okay, look, in in verse 9, you've got the first character, uh, the rich man. How's he doing? Well, his body's clothed with um, fine linen and silks, uh, expensive cloth. Um, His body's well-fed. Um, every meal is a feast, every day is a celebration. If he has a need, he's able to satisfy it almost immediately. So he lacks nothing. In contrast, you've got Lazarus, the beggar. His skin is covered with rashes and sores, not expensive, comfortable clothes. His body is exposed to the elements as he sits outside and exposed to packs of dogs who add to his pain by licking his open wounds. One man's outside physical condition Totally comfortable, totally provided for. Another guy's physical condition, constant pain, constant deprivation. Lazarus, sitting outside, smells the feasts probably taking uh, taking place inside the rich man's house. And it says he's longing for just the scrap that might come from the table. If only they just, you know, throw the trash out here. Um, Literally throw me a bone and I would take that is what he's saying. But he's laying out there, and in this life, he's utterly deprived. Now, if our life was merely about our bodies, if our life was merely about our physical needs, if that was all we were, just flesh and blood and bone, then the rich man would seem like the one who won out. I mean, he would seem like the person who was truly blessed, right? But but according to Scripture, the human condition is much more complex. We are not just bodies. We are not just walking appetites that are waiting to be fulfilled. Uh, Human beings have been created by God with both body and spirit. And during his life on earth, the rich man took care of his body, but he neglected his soul. He neglected his spirit. And now the the rich man is sitting in Hades, 
He's in agony. He feels the flame. Lazarus is in heaven, and he's finally comforted. Even though Lazarus' body on earth was in a state of neglect and decay, his soul was safe. And so now, for eternity, Lazarus is being comforted. And so Jesus is drawing this contrast, and he wants us to see what, what's better, uh, to suffer for a moment in this life and be comforted for eternity, or to be comfortable for a moment, for a blink of an eye, and to be in torment and anguish for eternity. Now, when we let God's word define reality for us, when we hold the lens of God's world, uh, word up to our situation, you see that from Jesus' perspective, that the physical needs that you have that seem overwhelming now, they pale in concern with the priority of caring for your soul. So I just got, how, how's your soul doing? Do we ever ask people that? I mean, we ask people, you know, how, how's work? How are your relationships? How are you feeling? We don't ask how your soul is. So how is your soul? Jesus is saying we neglect the state and the health of our soul at our own peril. And sadly, we, like the Pharisees and the people in Jesus' audience, we can't see the state of our souls because the values of this world are upside down. To our natural minds, the values of God's kingdom seem foolish, but in reality... If we would let God's word define reality for us, we would see that actually it's the pattern of this world that's upside down. We're the ones that are holding the picture upside down. And if we would only look at reality from God's perspective, we would get our values ordered correctly. The world of the Pharisees and the rulers of Jesus' day, this is the value system of their time. Uh, it was kind of a, a patronage-based society. So a patronage-based society means that you had people, wealthier people, more powerful people, and they took care of you. So it was all about who you knew. If you're going to throw a banquet, if you're going to throw a party, you want to invite the most well-connected, most wealthy, most powerful people that you could. So you, it was to your advantage to associate with the top, the cream of the crop, the absolute best and brightest. And Anytime you got together, you wanted to get connected with the most powerful person in the room. It was all about who you know. And there was this enormous social pressure to keep up appearances, to look like you had it all together, to look like you knew everyone, to look like you were in the right crowd. It doesn't seem that different from a lot of the circles that, that some of us travel in. Have you ever felt that pressure to keep up, that pressure to get connected to the most uh, well-liked, the most powerful person in the room? This is exactly uh, what happened in Jesus' day. And Jesus comes into this society, and he's the friend, not of the rich and powerful, but of the low and the despised. And he has the audacity to say things like this. This is what he says in a, another parable in Luke 14. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, because they might also invite you back, and then you'd get repaid. But instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they can't repay you. So God will repay you. He'll repay you at the resurrection of the just. He'll repay you in the next life. Okay, in our society today, that advice makes absolutely no sense. Why would you give expensive food? Why would you give a valuable seat at the table to someone because they can't pay you back? That seems like social suicide. It seems like financial suicide. It seems like a waste of time and money. And that thinking would be right if this life were all there is. But because 
This life is not all there is. That thinking is completely upside down. We know that that is not true. Just look at the value system of the story. Who's the hero of Jesus' parable? He's not going to get elected for office. He's not powerful. He's not popular. Uh, He's the beggar. He's the one nobody knows. Who's the villain? It's the guy who, when he walks through town, everyone knows him. Everyone wants to be connected to him. Everyone loves him. Everyone knew his name in this life. In the parable, he doesn't even get a name. Lazarus gets named. He's the one who's at Abraham's side. He's the favorite. He's the hero. It's just the opposite of what you would expect. And what Jesus is actually doing here is, I think, he's saying if we let God's word define reality for us, he's going to introduce a whole new way to network. In this world, it seems right to network with the rich, the powerful, the prestigious, And Jesus is saying, if you want to really advance, you network with the lowly, you network with the lonely, you network with the suffering and the poor and the needy. And if you get connected to them, you'll get connected to me. That's what you do. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will will be exalted. Have you ever had the experience of driving backwards down a one-way street? I hope and pray that you have not. And I'm not saying that I have had that experience, but if I had, this is what I would experience and have experienced. You're driving down the street, and there's this moment where you think, everyone else is driving the wrong way. What's got into all these dumb people? Because everyone else... Of course, I'm doing the right thing, but everyone else is going the complete opposite way. And then finally it dawns on you, I'm the one who's backwards. I'm in big trouble. Jesus is saying, we are the ones who are backwards. And we're in big trouble if we don't let God's word define our values for us. Because in reality, there is actually an eternal purpose for the possessions that we have in this world. If we let God's word define our reality, we'd see this pattern throughout the whole Old Testament. God blesses his people. He gives them provision to be a blessing. There is a reason God provides for us. And certainly it's because he loves us. Jesus says he feeds you and clothes you like he does the flowers and the birds. And he provides for you every day. Why? Because he's your father and he loves you. But in the Old Testament, you see this pattern. And if this man, if the Pharisees would have paid attention to it, they would have known. God blesses us in order to be a blessing. He blesses Abraham. Abraham was a rich man in the Old Testament. He blesses him. Why? So that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Joseph, in Genesis, becomes the CFO of Egypt, right? I mean, he's in charge of the whole Egyptian empire. All the resources of the the, the biggest uh, world power were at his disposal. Why? So he could save the world from famine. He blessed Joseph in order that Joseph would be a blessing. I mean, you see this pattern all throughout God's, the history of God's people. When, uh, in Deuteronomy, he says, when you come into the land, your heart shall not be grudging. You will give to your poor neighbors because the Lord will bless you in all your work and all your undertaking. Do you see that? Because God is blessing you, you shall open your hand to, the, to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land because you will always have them with you. That's what God's word says. Because I'm blessing you, 
You need to be open-handed with what I give you. Uh, There's this pattern in the Old Testament where you see what it means to be righteous, to live justly, to do mercy, to walk humbly with God. This is what one commentator says. He said, in the Old Testament, righteous people are the ones who deprive themselves for the sake of the community. Wicked people see their resources as belonging to them and to them alone. Righteous people see that much of what they had should be used out in the community. And the wicked say, no, it's all mine. So what did the rich man do? He ignored God's purpose for his possessions. He walks by the gate every single day. And he walks right by Lazarus. He sees his needs and he does nothing. This man, the rich man in the parable, was given immense wealth and he never stopped to ask why. He probably assumed falsely that it was given to him because he deserved it. But we know that God doesn't always give us what we deserve. (laughs) But God is just. And he does have a good and a right purpose for our possessions. And so Jesus is saying lovingly, guys, I told you, God's word has told you, you can't say I didn't warn you. My word has clearly defined reality for you. You cannot define it for yourself. And if you let the world define it for you, if you just keep up with what everyone, everyone else around you says and what everyone else around you does, and you let that be the thing that speaks into your life and shapes it, you do so at your own peril. To the degree that we let what feels right be our standard. We let the crowd set the standard. We become blind. We become like the Pharisees. So we have to listen to what God's word has given us. Uh, It both defines reality and it also diagnoses our problem. Because you see, if we look here in the parable, we'll see that the man's problem is, is actually about trust, not about treasure. His problem is not that he was rich. The problem is that he was wicked. Because in the Bible, we see the example of Abraham and Joseph. Not all rich people are wicked. And also, we see in the Bible that not all poor people are righteous. You've got the sluggard in Proverbs. You've got the people who are um, idle and abuse the church's charity in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and 1 Timothy. uh, The widows who aren't really widows. Um, so you've got examples uh, that, that are saying it's not just about materially what you have. It's about the state of your heart. It's about what you trust. The problem was not that the man was rich. It was that he was unjust with his riches. The root of the problem was his heart. <laughs> this man suffered uh, from a, a special type of sin called covetousness. That's not a word that we normally talk about. I think if we didn't have the Bible, we wouldn't even talk about being covetous. Uh, It would probably never make the top ten list of serious sins. Uh, But let me define what covetousness is. Uh, You know, in the Old Testament, uh, God uh, brought the Israelites through the desert. And to show them how he would provide for them. To show them that he was the one who was taking care of them. That he was the one in control. And all their provision came from him. He provided miraculous food for them called manna. And the way the manna worked is every day they would go outside and they would gather enough, they would gather up, up enough just for one day. And so some people, they didn't trust God. They didn't trust Moses. And, so, and they were worried, well, maybe he won't provide tomorrow. 
And so what they did is they gathered extra. So they stacked their tents full of manna and they thought, well, okay, even if God doesn't provide tomorrow, we still are taken care of because I got this stockpile here. And what happened, it says, the people who left part of it till the morning, the manna bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. Why was Moses angry with them? He said, I told you not to keep it. (laughs) If you keep it, if you hoard the manna, it will go bad. It will breed worms and stink. And what God's word is saying, if you hoard his provision, if you gather it up for yourself, if you don't trust, if you don't open your hand to the poor and the needy, I'm telling you right now, your wealth will turn sour and it will stink. You do not want to hold on to it. You need to open your hands, God's word has said. Because our treasure problem, it turns out, is really a trust problem. If we trust that God will provide tomorrow, we can be free and generous with what he's given today. And it's not just that our problem is a trust problem. We see also that we don't have a problem with a lack of revelation. We have a problem with a lack of repentance. Look look, look here in verse 27. The rich man is having a conversation. He's experiencing judgment. And he says, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Um, Please order uh, Lazarus up uh, to my father's house. And he needs to go and warn them so that they don't come into this place of torment. And what does Abraham say? They've been warned already. They have God's word. They have Moses and the prophets. And the subtext of what this guy's asking Abraham to do is he's trying to say, listen, I know they've got the Bible, but they need something else. They need something special. They need something personal. They need something miraculous. They need something direct. And then they won't have any excuse. Then they'll really move. Then they'll really do what's right. And what Abraham says is they've got what they need. They don't need more revelation. What they need to do is to repent. What the rich man's trying to do is he's he's trying to say, listen, uh, Abraham, I didn't really know. It's not really my fault. If only God had done more, if only God had uh, warned me uh, more strongly or done something uh, miraculous for me, then I, you know, then I would have changed. And Abraham's saying, you wouldn't have changed. You did what you wanted to do. And you had God's word. And so I wonder for us, do we ever do that? Do we ever play the if only game? Uh, God, if only you would do this for me. God, if only you would change my circumstances in this way. God, if only I could see you, um, or, or if only you would answer this prayer, then I would be obedient. I remember being at a Young Life camp, and I was having a conversation with this kid about the resurrection, about following Jesus, and, and um, about you know, deciding to live your life in obedience to him. And he just said, I don't know. I mean, if I had seen Jesus, if I could really see him and touch him, then I feel like I could, then I could do this. But it just feels too risky. I mean, have you ever felt that? That if you were there in the upper room and you got to be like Thomas and you got to put your finger in Jesus' side, that, you know, that then you'd really be obedient. Then you'd really be generous. Then you'd really live this like fully committed, surrendered Christian life. 
And I think what this passage is saying, nah, you wouldn't. Let's just be honest. The reason we're disobedient is because we want to be disobedient. The reason we sin is because we love sinning. It's because we want to sin. We sin because we're sinners. If you tell a lie in the moment, it's because telling the lie is more attractive. It's more satisfying. It's more desirable than obeying God. If you're looking at something on the computer that you shouldn't be looking at, it's because you want to do that. And because that's more attractive to you than enjoying God, enjoying obedience to him. If you're gossiping, it's because it feels good to look down on other people, to feel superior, to feel like you're in the know. Do you see, we sin not because of a lack of revelation. It's not because God hasn't clearly revealed his will. We sin because we like to sin. The problem is in our hearts. And the sooner we can be honest about our problem, the sooner we can receive the cure. Now, let's go back to the audience. You know, Jesus has, has crafted this parable for this group of Pharisees. And it says in Luke 16, uh, 14, describes the Pharisees as, as lovers of money. So the problem with money was that their hearts were captured by it. And then it says this amazing phrase. Jesus says, you're the ones who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God sees what we love. God sees our hearts. God knows our hearts. He's looking into your heart, into my heart. He's looking into the hearts of these men, and he's saying, I see what you love. You don't have to hide it from me. Let's be honest about what you love. Let's be honest about what's in your hearts. And if we're honest about what's in our hearts, as I was studying this, I was terrified by what's in my heart. It's scary what's in your heart. If God gives you just, just a little bit of revelation of the, the selfishness and the sin in your heart, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. So what hope is there for a people whose hearts are captured and full of a love for sin? Well, you need a new love. Our only hope, our only cure is a greater love that can replace the old love. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. What are we going to do? If we listen to the Bible, we can see that God not only defines reality, he not, he not only diagnoses the problem, but he's also dispensing freely, graciously the cure. The solution to our problem is right here in verse 30. And it's this one little word. The word is repent. Our solution is that we must repent and believe the gospel. And this word repentance, I know it can kind of be this, you know, Christianese uh, lingo. But repentance really just means turning around. Uh, it, it means a complete change in our attitude and our thinking and our behavior toward God and his commands. It's a big concept. This is the best definition I've found of what repentance means. Repentance is a saving grace. It's worked in the hearts of sinners by the Spirit and by the Word of God. Listen to this. In repentance, sinners recognize how dangerous it is to commit sins and also how filthy and hateful they are to God. In repentance, they understand that in Christ, God is merciful to those who repent. And sinners such, suffer such deep sorrow for, and they hate their sins so much that they turn away from all of them and they turn to God. 
attempting to walk continually with him according to, to this new obedience in every way. Did you hear that? It's a gracious act of God. It's a gift that God gives you, the gift of repentance, where you turn from sin and you turn to God. You turn to Jesus as he has offered to us in the gospel. The solution to our problem, this repentance, it comes from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. You see in verse 15, it says the the Pharisees, they're the ones who seek to justify themselves. They're the ones who seek to make themselves righteous. They kind of try to make themselves good. They try to work up this goodness of their own effort. They're the ones who help themselves. But the hero of the parable is a man named Lazarus. And that man's name means God helps. There's a reason why he's named. The hero of the story is the one who is helped by God. And what's he like? I mean, he's, he's totally passive the whole time. Uh, I mean, if he gets to the gates, it's because someone dropped him there. If he gets up to heaven, it's because the angels carried him there, right? He doesn't move on his own. He's completely passive. He's acted upon by an outside force. Brothers and sisters, you and I are absolutely helpless to help ourselves. We need to be acted on by an outside force. We need God to reach in and bring us to him and praise Jesus. He has done that. Jesus is saying, if you would just listen to the gospel, you would know that it is God who rescues. It is the one is God who helps. It is God who saves because we cannot help ourselves God has decided to help us. And when you run to Jesus, when you turn from sin and you embrace him, you get three things. You receive God the Father as our Father, who who loves and, and orders things for our good. You receive Christ the Son as our advocate, as our sacrifice, forgiving our sin and offering us his record of righteousness. You receive the Spirit as our helper, empowering you from within to live a life of obedience to God. That's the solution to our problem. Our cure is the gospel. We need to receive the Father's smile, the Son's righteousness, the Spirit's power. And if we would embrace the gospel, we would be able to live a life of obedience to God. Because the gospel doesn't just free us from judgment. It doesn't just free us from condemnation. The gospel sets us free to do something. It sets us free too, and it constrains us to extend mercy and to live lives of justice and righteousness. If we would really believe the gospel, Jesus is saying, you would be able to do what God requires. In 2 Corinthians, Paul does something pretty interesting. He's writing to them, and he's trying to get the church to give money uh, to uh, relief for this famine. Now, I'm not going to try to give you, get you to give money for relief for a famine right now. But what he does is he says, he, he, he does something really interesting. He doesn't just say, hey, give to it because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't just say, give to it because I told you to. He says, if you remember the gospel, you will be generous. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's saying, if you would remember the great exchange of the gospel, Jesus coming down from heaven, leaving his riches to come towards you, 
if you would let that story shape your heart, if you let that go deep down into your soul, you would respond in gratitude and mercy and justice and righteousness. We need to look to Jesus. Where is Jesus in this parable? I mean, it seems kind of hopeless, doesn't it? I think, you know, often in the New Testament uh, and in the Old also, I mean, if you can't find Jesus uh, clearly in the story, there's kind of a Jesus-shaped hole <laughs> that is longing for Jesus to come in and redeem the story. And so that, I just want to show you, I mean, it's right here in the parable. Jesus is there, but he's kind of there in negative. What did the poor man need? Well, what he really needed is he needed a righteous, rich man to come. Someone who was open-handed with what God had given him. And he needed this man to walk up to him, to get close, to notice his situation, to take pity on him, and to spend himself for the good of the poor man. Jesus is saying, look at me. That's exactly what I've done. I've come down from heaven. I've noticed your situation. And everything I have, I'm giving to you. Every need that you have, I will supply because I am good and I'm gracious and I'm generous and I'm reflecting the generous heart of the Father toward you. And if you would believe that, if you would know that, if you would look not just to Moses and the prophets, but you'd look to the one to whom Moses and the prophets point to me, you'd be set free. And you could live life in this life with a view to the next. And you look back and you think, I didn't miss out. I didn't have any regrets because I grabbed hold of the one thing that was most precious, the one thing that was most solid, the one thing that was most valuable, Jesus Christ. If we grab hold of him, the things of this life seem light and momentary in comparison. I'll just close with this. Um, C.S. Lewis tells this story, and uh, I don't know where he tells it, but someone told me he told it, and so I'm going to tell it to you because I think it's amazing. <laughs> you know, at the end of Jesus's, um, at the end uh, of the Gospels, uh, the disciples are, are huddled in the upper room, and the doors are locked, and they're there, and, and they're kind of afraid. And the resurrected Jesus in his resurrection body appears in the room. And so the question is, how did the resurrected Jesus get through a locked door? How did he travel through solid walls? And what some people have thought throughout history is, well, Jesus' resurrected body must be kind of, you know, ghostly. Maybe it um, is kind of less dense than this world. And so it can kind of, you know, pass through and kind of do whatever we want. Um, it's really interesting to think of these things, by the way. This is what C.S. Lewis is, says. The reason Jesus was able to pass through the walls is not because he was less dense than the walls. It's because this world, this life, in comparison to God, is like a mist. Jesus could pass through the walls because he was more solid than this life. That the reality of the resurrection is more solid, it's more real, it's more durable than anything you will encounter in this life. Everything on this earth will fade, but Jesus will last forever. Amen? And so we come to him. We come to the scriptures. 
and we look and we want to thank God because he's been generous to us. He's given us what we need. He's not trying to trick us. We know that he's given us everything that we need. And so the question is, what are we going to do about it? Jesus is telling the story. He's having this conversation to provoke a response. We aren't told what Jesus' audience thought. We aren't told what they did. We do know that some of them decided to kill him because they were angry. Because they didn't want to uh, obey the word. They just were content to hear the word. And so for us, Christ Community Church, I, I think we do a tremendous job of caring uh, for the needy that God has put in our, at our gates and in our midst. Uh, but I want to press upon us, uh, is there more that God is asking you to do? When you get your paycheck, if you get a, a paycheck, praise the Lord. When you look at it, do you see it as something that you earned or do you see it as something that God has provided for you? Do you see it as the manna that God has provided and that he's going to continue to provide uh, tomorrow and the next day? Do you trust him? When you see someone in need, do you think I'm better than them? <laughs> I'm above them? Or do you embrace the values of Jesus' kingdom? Do you see yourself as lower? Do you see yourself as needy? Do you see yourself as hungry and dependent on God's grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know all that we have comes to us from your generous hand. Lord, we thank you that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. And we thank you that you have uh, freely offered everything that we need, forgiveness of sin, the power to turn from our sin, that you've, you've clearly laid it out in your scriptures, and you've given us the gospel. And so now, Father, I ask that you would give us the power to repent, the power to believe, the power to change, the power to, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love and spend ourselves for our neighbors the same way we love and spend on ourselves. Uh, we need your help to do it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn together.